House Call, an Infinity Strategies podcast, dives into issues central to healthcare, explores ways in which healthcare professionals are advancing medicine through research and improvements, as well as the impact of quality assurance standards. Episodes highlight how healthcare professionals and organizations are connecting with communities, including underserved and marginalized populations. These firsthand stories will unpack the rapid changes in the field and answer the question why we do what we do. Hopefully, these stories will inspire you to think differently about the healthcare system and take action. Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I am the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. Our third episode entitled Changing the World One Step at a Time is a heartfelt and engaging conversation with Dr. Matthew Dobbs and Amy Thomason. During this episode, we chat about Dr. Dobbs' world-renowned practice of child lower limb deformities correction and Amy's experience as a parent of a clubfoot kid, as well as her own child medical complexities. Dr. Dobbs and Amy share some deeply personal stories on these subjects and also provide very honest, uplifting, and positive insights and advice. I hope you enjoy listening to the Changing the World One Step at a Time episode as much as I loved talking with these two incredible humans. They are truly inspiring and having a tremendous impact on the world. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We have not one, but two amazing guests on today's episode, Dr. Matthew Dobbs and Amy Thomason. Dr. Dobbs is internationally recognized for his expertise and innovation in the field of pediatric foot and lower limb deformities, as well as in the management of patients with cerebral palsy spasticity. He is director of the Dobbs Clubfoot Center at the Paley Institute in West Palm Beach, Florida. Prior to that, he was the ASA C and Mrs. Dorothy W. Jones Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and the Director of Strategic Planning at Washington University School of Medicine. He has also co-directed an NIH-funded musculoskeletal genetics research laboratory and was founder and director of the Clubfoot Clinic at St. Louis Children's from 2001 to 2020. He has been named a top orthopedic surgeon by U.S. News & World Report, top doctors, Castle Connolly, Consumers Research Council, Orthopedics This Week, the International Association of Orthopedic Surgeons, and St. Louis Magazine. Dr. Dobbs trained under the guidance of Professor Ignacio Ponzetti. Since that time, he has introduced the Ponzetti method for clubfoot management to surgeons in more than 50 countries. He has established a Train the Trainers program for clubfoot management, where key thought leaders from around the world are trained in the method so they can return home and train other surgeons in their country. Patients travel to see Dr. Dobbs from all 50 states and from more than 65 countries across six continents. He is the current president of the United States Bone and Joint Initiative of the International Federation of Pediatric Orthopedic Surgeons of the Sikath Foundation, director of the International Club Foot Congress, secretary of the Association of Bone and Joint Surgeons, and Senior Editor for Clinical Orthopedics and Related Research. Dr. Dobbs has lectured and taught in more than 60 countries and has run an international fellows training program for more than 15 years. He has presented over 300 talks at major national and international scientific conferences, published over 160 scientific peer-reviewed medical journal articles, including publications in the New England Journal of Medicine and Nature Methods, written over 30 book chapters, and authored a textbook. Amy Thomason is an executive director and vice president, marketing and membership at Affinity Strategies, serving currently as executive director for the American College of Medical Quality and the Society of Dermatology Nurse Practitioners. She has extensive experience in marketing and communications, membership development, and volunteer engagement, working in a variety of business environments ranging from Fortune 500 companies to professional associations. Amy is incredibly passionate about volunteerism within the association and nonprofit community and serves on the board of directors for Ever Thrive Illinois, a community health nonprofit working to improve the health and well being of women, children, and families throughout Illinois. She is also co chair of Association Forum's content working group. 
Amy has spoken at conferences and events for ASAE, Association Forum, Association Trends, PCMA, the Public Relations Society of America, and more. She is also a prolific guest author who has written more than 30 magazine articles and blog posts for association publications. Amy is a 2018 recipient of Association Forum's 40 Under 40 Award. She has a BA in Communications from the University of Missouri-Columbia, an Executive Leadership Certificate from Cornell University, a Professional Fundraising Certificate from Boston University, and received her Digital Event Strategist Certification from PCMA in 2020, and her Certified Association Executive Credential from the American Society of Association Executives in 2021. You both have impressive experience, skills, and accomplishments, and we are so grateful to have you as guests on the show today. Welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover with both of you today, so I'm going to go ahead and dive right in. Amy, I'm going to hit you up with the first couple of questions today. How did you become interested in medical association management? So I think like a lot of association professionals, I fell into this line of work. I spent the first 10 years of my career working in a completely different industry in corporate environments, actually in manufacturing and distribution. And I'd really only heard of or had experience with trade associations. I was looking to make a career transition, you know, about 10 years into my career, and I actually met with a friend of a friend who was working at an association. And again, I really didn't have much of an idea of what this is, but was trying to discover some different career paths and really find my passion. So we had coffee at Starbucks, and while the conversation was really just meant to introduce me to the world of professional associations, I ended up sharing some thoughts and ideas that were of interest to him and his organization, and that organization ended up bringing me on board. Now, I've heard uh, several people talk about like those little moments that change everything, and I think that was certainly the case in this instance. A coffee really led to, most importantly, a lifelong friendship, but also a new career path and finding my passion. And really, as a patient and the parent of a patient and somebody who works with physicians and nurses daily, for the first time in my career, I really feel like there's a direct correlation between the work that I do and some of my personal passions. So that's why I really love association management and want to continue this path for the rest of my career. Oh, gosh, that is so great. I just love hearing about people who are able to connect, you know, maybe what has started out obviously is a very personal passion and to be able to connect that to their profession. And it's got to feel a lot less like work when you are able to pair those things. Definitely. Ah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. So as part of my preparation for our conversation today, I read several of the articles that you've published over the years and congratulations on doing all of that really great work and connecting your background and kind of giving back in that way. So thank you for doing that. Oh, thank you. In particular, I found the article entitled Human-Centric Marketing from Associations that was published on Wicket Interesting because you mentioned the power of storytelling as a marketing tool. I'm wondering if you could share a couple of examples with us on how you've leveraged storytelling with the medical associations that you've supported. Definitely. So I really think storytelling is important for organizations, especially associations, because associations are created by members for members. And because personal stories, they really create that emotional connection and they help build trust. And I think that's so important for associations. Some associations, I feel like dismiss storytelling because Mm. they think It's going to take too long or it's going to consume too many resources. But I really would like association professionals to pivot their thinking on this. 
Anything an organization is doing within its current marketing plan truly can incorporate stories. Hmm. So I'll give you a couple examples of that. For instance, in the past year, just some of our work with affinity clients. So I oversee two clients, as you mentioned earlier, but I also oversee marketing and communications across all of our client base. So some of the things we've done with affinity clients in the last year, I think apply to what I'm talking about here. One we've done with an ear, nose, and throat group, we did day in the life Instagram takeovers and even took people inside like prepping for a surgery, all those sorts of things, what an entire day looks like for somebody who's an ENT. We've done member spotlights and newsletters. I don't think that's really reinventing the wheel there, but it's really important to be able to share those member stories. We had a meet the doctors webinar with patients and patient groups actually a couple of weeks ago. And I believe there were more than 200 people on that webinar. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. And even at Affinity, you know, we do with our own staff, we do blog posts highlighting each member of the team. We really make sure we're highlighting personal and professional wins because when you're working with a boutique association management company like us, it is personal. You get to know everyone. One of my clients, he has my son call him grandpa. I mean, there's just really a personal connection. And that's what I love about this work. Oh, that's fabulous. And what kind of feedback maybe from those associations that were historically resistant to using storytelling, how has that impacted their kind of viewpoint of it now? One way I would counsel associations to think about this is like to try to apply storytelling to ROI. So we utilize video. We have a video tool we use. And when we embed video from our members in communications, I can show them that the open rates have increased. I can show them that the click-throughs have increased. And so therefore I can go back and tie that storytelling initiative to some ROI for the association. And I think that's really helpful in getting folks to get on board. One, understanding it doesn't take more resources necessarily. And two, there are ways to truly tie this to ROI. Oh, that's awesome. I bet that has been very eye-opening for your clients. Yes. Good work. Good work. Thank you. So Dr. Dobbs, turning to you and getting into some of the substantive questions we have on our mind for you, would you mind describing your areas of interest within your medical subspecialty? Absolutely. No, it's, it's good to be here. I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, you know, so within my particular area of expertise, I've honed in my skills in, in a congenital limb deformities. So I take care of a lot of children that are born with foot, knee, and hip abnormalities that need correction to be able to help them walk and advance, you know, with motor milestones. So that's really my true area of love. I also you know, have a, a pretty big practice in CP. Mm. Palsy. And, but it's interesting if you, if you look at the whole thing, choosing within pediatrics, I think, you know, one of the funny things is, is how our career paths evolve. And as Amy alluded to just a minute ago, it's the people you meet. So when I was a medical student trying to figure out what I was going to do, you know, this is when you start to meet your mentors and you never know what's going to change your life in that way. And, and that's how I got to meet some of my key mentors that I said, I know, and I really want to go into orthopedics and in particular, you know, pediatrics. So it all sort of evolves with the people that you meet and you never know sort of what direction your life would have gone, <laughs> you know, with different mentors, and different interactions, but it's kind of funny that way for all of us, I know. <laughs> yeah. And just like with Amy, I also love to hear how professionals, certainly in the medical field have just decided maybe sometimes hadn't even realized that that was maybe going to be their interest, but it's, you know, the people they've encountered along the way. I'm guessing maybe based on your bio, you're talking about Professor Ponzetti. Would you mind talking a little bit about your relationship with him and in particular, the method that you learned and you are carrying forward on his behalf? Absolutely. Yeah. So he, he was certainly a giant in the field and influenced my life tremendously. So I met him as a medical student. That's when I first met mm. him. And when I actually to meet him, I did a research project with him and just really you know, saw his passion and he was older at the time, you know, that I first met him, even as a medical student, he was still practicing, but he was older and you got to see sort of and understand his approach, you know, to medicine and his life experiences were were just incredible. He's Spanish by birth. He was Mm -hmm. born in Mallorca, you know, small island Mm -hmm. in Spain. He finished his orthopedic training at the time of the Spanish civil war. 
you know, so this kind of, you know, dates where he was in time here. But so he was basically a medic on the front lines of that conflict and was on the losing end of the conflict and was mm-hmm. forced out of the country. So he escaped by pushing a wounded soldier across country lines into France. You know, so it's really an interesting sort of aspect. And then from there, he was able to go to Mexico because Spain was not accepting the exiles for very long, excuse me, France. And so he went to Mexico, became a primary care doctor and uh, lived there for five years before being able to migrate to Iowa. And that's a kind of a strange migration path, right? But the, the chairman at the orthopedic department in Iowa at the time was Austrian. And another sort of worldly figure spoke five languages and was empathetic to Ponsetti's plight and took him in. And it was there that Ponsetti, the University of Iowa, sort of, you know, got interested in clubfoot, saw that some of the long-term outcomes were not so good with traditional treatments, and was interested in developing a less invasive way to treat clubfoot kids. And this was a very long process. It wasn't an epiphany, you know, that he mm-hmm. had. He studied this a lot. He studied stillborns that had clubfoot. He learned the anatomy, tried to figure out the pathology, and then slowly developed a method that would take away major surgery. So really life-changing for kids. Yeah, that's amazing. And Dr. Dobbs, had you had an interest in lower limb deformities before you connected with Dr. Ponsetti? No, the honest answer to that is no. That was not on my radar screen because I literally met him as a medical student. This is when I was still trying to figure out, you know, what on earth I was even going to go into. Right. And at that point, I actually, this is the third year in medical school and I had already committed to neurosurgery. And so I had gone through the rotations. I actually went through applications with accepted. It was an early match into neurosurgery and then sort of, you know, met Ponsetti and it changed my life and sort of rotating through with orthopedic surgeons and just really fell in love with the oh, field. That is fantastic. Oh, what a great story. And thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. You know, wondering too, if you might want to talk a little bit more with us about your train the trainers program. And obviously it has an enormous worldwide impact. Can you think of maybe a couple of stories with respect to that program and the impact that has had on the care that these folks have been able to provide when they return to their countries? Absolutely. Yeah, this is a program that's near and dear to my heart. And this is something of you know, the, the Ponsetti method, which is a minimally invasive method. You can use casting and very small mm-hmm. procedure to correct you know, the congenital deformity. And when it's applied correctly and you go through bracing and so forth, it leads to excellent feet long-term. And so this doesn't require a fancy operating room, you know, no anesthetics. You can do this with minimal resources. So it was an ideal solution to take to the most poor regions of the world. You know, this is something you really could implement. And I was involved early on in some fly-in, fly-out medical missions for a variety of things. You go in and operate on 100 children in a week and leave. And and Mm. yes, you help a hundred children, but you're not moving the needle very much. You know, Mm -hmm. you're not helping that country or wherever you're going to really change their infrastructure to take care of these kids. Mm -hmm. So if you have a a diagnosis like this, a problem like this, where you can actually train them to take care of themselves, you know, it's like the whole fisherman story. You can allow them to affect tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of kids. So that's sort of the idea behind the program. Then with the Ponsetti method, I used to travel, did workshops for a week you know, train people in their country. And yes, you you have an impact there. But again, the follow-up is not great. They're going to get something out of a week spending time with you. They're not going to become experts, you know, and the Ponsetti method requires a lot of expertise to do it well. And so I found the better way to do this was actually to identify key thought leaders. So if you can identify champions in different parts of the world that were really interested in this, bring them here train them for a more extended period of time, empower them with all the tools they need, go back, continue support, then they can then train hundreds and hundreds of people. It's just a, it's a funnel. And so that's, you know, it's definitely near and dear to my heart. And I spent, you know, many, many years doing this in China and other parts of Southeast Asia. And we have over 180 training centers in that part of the world. So it's really good. And we've done this in other areas, done in Russia, and we've done it some in South America and other places, but that truly... I think it's the most effective way to move the needle. COVID's made a damper in this. The last two years has been really tricky. I've had no international travel. So, you know, we're figuring out how to keep up with people through Zooms and other interactions to keep things moving. But that's been really hard. And uh, and the number of international fellows coming to be able to train with us has been less 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's picking up again, but it's been less. We just got done with the training one from the Czech Republic the last year, mm-hmm. who's going back interestingly and been able to establish both in Czech Republic as well as Poland, which are two areas that really need some help. So it's exciting. It's fun to do. And definitely, I think it makes a difference long term. Yeah. I mean, the impact, it's even hard for me to wrap my head around the impact that your program is having. And you're literally changing the world, which is really amazing. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Amy, I understand that you have suffered from your own medical complexities when you were a child and wondering if you could maybe talk with us about the impacts of those issues, not only on you, but on your family as well. Certainly. So I was born with a birth defect. I was born with a cleft palate and I had a number of surgeries from my early childhood through my adolescence, which ranged from full cleft revisions to simpler procedures like tubes in and out of my ears. And there were actually, before I was born and even after I was born, my parents were presented with a host of other potential complications or medical issues that they thought I might have. I was supposed to be deaf by around age two. That obviously has not happened, thankfully, but there was a lot put on my parents. My mom especially gave up her career to be able to care for me. And especially because she thought there was the possibility I might be deaf, was really focused on pouring a lot of language into me in those first two years and doing what she could. And, you know, what I experienced through the cleft, some issues with my speech, breathing, swallowing. I was in speech therapy until I want to say adolescence. I think it was just as difficult, if not more difficult for my parents. Mm. You know, they're the ones that were really tasked with making decisions that impacted my health and well-being. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that had to make sacrifices for their career, their personal lives, financial sacrifices, getting me to and from appointments, lying up additional therapies, caring for me before and after surgeries. And I really think as a kid, I felt like a lot of things were out of my control. And I know that's not unique to me because kids' lives generally are pretty well managed by their caretakers. Mm -hmm. But I had this additional complexity. I was missing autonomy in one key area in my life, and that was bodily autonomy. Decisions were being made about my body in my best interests, but not by me. Mm-hmm. And I'm the one who's living in it. So it's really something that's impacted me in ways. Actually, I'm just beginning to unpack and understand. And I think that affects things a lot in regards to my son and how, what life looks like for him and my interpretation of what life could or could not be for him. So, you know, it's impacted me in great ways and certainly added some additional stresses too. I think in great ways, I have additional empathy for what he's going through. I understand what it looks like to be other. I understand what it looks like to be different. I can empathize with that, but I think it also induced a little bit more panic and stress in me too, because I thought, okay, I've been through this. I know what it feels like. I know what it looks like. Certainly we had different birth defects or conditions, but there are some similarities there. And so I think there was that angst, Mm -hmm. but also some of that comfort too, and knowing, Hey, I can help guide you through this because I've been there. Mm -hmm. And how, and I suppose, Amy, this may have depended a little bit on your own journey with coming to grips with, you know, what you had gone through as a child and then watching your own son grapple with medical complexities. How do you balance Your concern as a parent, you having had firsthand knowledge of going through, you know, something similar, how do you balance those things when you're thinking about your role as caregiver for your son? It's certainly something that's taken a lot of time. And I'll just take a step back for a second, because I Mm -hmm. think it might be helpful for folks to understand what the Ponsetti method, which is what we follow for my son's protocol, his care, what that looks like for folks who aren't super familiar with that. And Dr. Dobbs can certainly speak more eloquently than me on this, but I'll just share a personal experience. So when my son was born, we were discharged from the hospital. 10 hours later, he was at his first orthopedist appointment. He was put in a cast from tip of toe to hip. Every week he was cut out of that cast and put in another cast. At seven weeks, he had an Achilles tenotomy, then a cast for three weeks. And then 
the um, boots and bar for 23 hours a day for quite some time. And now he's doing it from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So it really changes like the structure of what life looks like. Like we got to be home at seven. We've got to be in the house. We've got to have the boots on, all those things. We're very diligent about that as parents. But it certainly has impacted just the structure of our day-to-day lives. And you have to be prepared for that. So mm-hmm. it's changed things a little bit for us. I think I'll talk in a little bit about just some of my hopes and dreams for other clubfoot parents and ways to support them. But that's something I'm really focused on is how can I connect with other parents and help in some way make life easier for those folks. But I really think for my son, going back to your question, I want to focus on what's special about him and amazing Mm. about him outside of this condition, because this does not define him. You know, he's an amazing kid. He's really smart. He's really bright. He's really funny. He's really sassy. Like he's a great kid. And so for the first few like months, and even really the first year of his life, it felt very focused on treating the medical condition on going to appointments. And now I really want to focus on him just being an awesome kid and living life. That's amazing. How old is he, Amy? He is four. Oh, wow. 10 hours after he was born, he was in his first cast. Yes. That's extraordinary. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. It's really impactful. Thank you. You know, it's the first time it, it helps talking about these stories. It's really the first time other than, you know, with friends or family of being able to talk about this. So it's really a privilege, especially to be able to talk about this in the company of Dr. Dobbs. Oh, that's fantastic. And you know, that's why we have this platform, right? Is so that we can get stories like these out there and you and Dr. Dobbs will have an impact on our listeners. We know, we know you will. Yeah. Dr. Dodds, did you want to add anything to what Amy was talking about with respect to certainly her son and the application of the Ponzetti method? I think she was very eloquent with that. She said <laughs> she wasn't going to be, I think that was, that was a great presentation. And certainly from a parental standpoint, she can give views that I can't personally give. Mm-hmm. You know, I come at it from the provider. I obviously talk and listen with hundreds and hundreds of families. So I know their experiences, but I haven't lived that personally. So the, the treatment, you know, as Amy alluded to, I mean, it's it's simple in nature. When it's done correctly, understanding how to do the process, casting for several months, the procedure and bracing. But this is, you can imagine for family going through this and a child, I mean, this is not a one and done. Yeah, you know, this is something you live for a long time. So you become a part of it. And the families like Amy's are committed to this. You know, this is what makes the treatment work. And they do it because they know that this is the right treatment for their child long-term. And, and she may have had these thoughts too. I mean, during the process, you're doing this for years and gosh, I wish there was a quick fix. And, mm. and sometimes people will jump to that. And the quick fix is a bigger surgery where you, you know, correct things all at once, but we know long-term, and this is part of our research that we've done, the kids that have had a major surgery for this, if you follow them long enough, you know, into adulthood, and that's our ultimate measure of success, right? How do these kids function as adults? Yeah, They don't do well at all, but have had big surgery. Wow. This is the reason that Pond said he developed what he did. And it's the reason that we need to be passionate about it. It's the reason as caregivers, we have to educate families because they're dealing with this at a very stressful time. You know, and you have to present options and what's available and the reasons behind it. Mm-hmm. And they need to buy into the whole thing. And this is sort of the relationship building partnership with families that you have to do. And if you don't develop that closeness, you can lose them. It's a close tie. They need to be able to reach you and vice versa. Um, it's a true partnership. And I tell all of my families, I played less than a 1% role in the care. I mean, they're living this every day, putting the boots on. They're doing this. I mean, it's their involvement that makes it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful thing to watch. I mean, it's the commitment and it's, it's the buy-in and they do so wonderfully long-term, uh, but it is certainly a process. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. You call it a simple method. Technically, when you learn it, it's easy to apply, but there's nothing easy about clubfoot. I mean, yeah. it's something you go through. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to have a commitment to the long view for sure. Right. Correct. Oh man. Switching gears a little bit, Dr. Dobbs. I'd love to hear about the innovative solutions that you have developed for congenital and developmental foot extremity deformities. Absolutely. No, I'd love to share. I think that some are probably good, some aren't. <laughs> <laughs> 
But, I, you know, as a physician, when you're involved in patient care, I think this is a true privilege and honor to do this. And if you identify shortcomings in treatment practices, you know, rather than saying, this is what I learned in residency, this is the way I'm going to do this forever. I mean, you've got to be willing to think outside the box and be willing to try to develop, you know, new and innovative things to push the needle forward. And that's, you know, I'd like to think that's what I've always tried to do in my career. And I think it's taught to me by Ponsetti. You know, he was laughed at and not listened to for years and years and years about the Ponsetti method. I mean, he published on this in the 1960s in the most infamous orthopedic journal there is, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. And it didn't change practice at all. Nobody. And it was at the time where people were, you know, going crazy for big surgeries and nobody's, you know, it's like, yeah, we're not going to do this. We want our surgeons. We want to operate, you know? So what is this method? He's crazy. And it even went to the point where, you know, club feet are different in Iowa. (laughs) You know, they're not real club feet there. You know, he's treating some different problem, you know? Oh my gosh. For years. I mean, he literally, the, the, the man went to retirement with the club foot problem being solved in Iowa. And that was it. And he came out of retirement to go on a crusade and, mm-hmm. and he trained a core group of, we call ourselves the disciples. He's a handful of people that then bought into this. And with the advent of technology and the internet, we're able to spread. He didn't mm-hmm. have those abilities, mm-hmm. you know, and this was a movement. And again, you go back to the physician. This was not an altruistic movement by most physicians. This is a parent driven change. And it's one of the first things in our sort of lifetime that you can think of that's ever happened like this. So this was parents, this is back when Yahoo chat rooms were around, right? <laughs> no, no Facebook even. And yeah. parents got on and talked about this and they went to their physicians and said, we want you to do this. And this is what actually drove change. It wasn't physicians driving physician change. And so I said, you know what, well, this is great, but this is also wrong, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to be ourselves taking some ownership in this. And so some of the things that I've done in the clubfoot world is one of the things I identified early on and Amy may or may not had trouble with this, but you know, the bracing styles, when I started, they were archaic, you mm. know, these were back in the 1930s, the old Dennis Brown bars and sure. white shoes. Like really, this is the best we can do. And so the ideas were to try to innovate in that system and develop something that's more modern. So more comfortable shoes and bars that can articulate and move and mm. help children get more comfortable. And the whole goal is if the child's more comfortable, they're not waking the parents up all night, they're going to sleep. And that improves compliance and tolerance. Mm-hmm. You know, if the child's miserable, I mean, parents are working. I mean, people have to sleep in the house. And so you can't go on for weeks and weeks with no sleep. And so these were some of the things that I did early on was developing a new bar system. I'm currently developing a new shoe for Clubfoot. And this has been kind of fun. I mean, the ones we have now are much improved from what we had back when I started, but they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're actually working with a 3D technology company in Canada. We're developing some 3D customized shoes because some of the club feet, when you first start out, they're not totally normal looking feet when you're done with casting. They're hard to fit in traditional shoes. Mm-hmm. And so you have to, and some of the feet are much more severe than others in that manner. And you put them in standard shoes, they fail. Mm. And so you have to have ways of being able to hold them in a different way. So that's another thing I'm working on. And I guess one last thing I can tell you, I guess, innovative wise that I was inspired by Ponsetti is another congenital foot deformity. And it's called vertical talus. It's less common than clubfoot. So clubfoot's about one in 800 around the world. Vertical talus is more about one in 5,000. But you're born with it and it's a severe, rigid, flat foot. Very, very rigid, stiff. And so the treatment for that also was a large, really extensive surgery. And the Mm -hmm. kids didn't do a lot of complications. And so when I first started my career, I was doing Ponsetti method for club feet. And then I was taught this big operation for vertical tail. I said, this doesn't make sense. you got one congenital foot problem. You can figure out a casting method. Why can't you do something for this? So I developed a casting method that's effective now. Uh, it leads it to a very small surgery to correct vertical talus. And that's been fun. So that sort of thing, you know, the ideas inspired by Ponsetti, but to do something, you know, out of the box, you know, you, you have to break down barriers and you have to be open to criticism and you have to be willing to take risk. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, you know, again, we, we can't be stagnant. Uh, you don't make progress. So that's, that's, that's kind of, I guess, some of the things I, I enjoy doing. I'm probably a frustrated engineer or something. I'm not sure what, 
what I am, you know, <laughs> but the entrepreneurial, you know, innovative side is something I've always, always enjoyed. Well, you are exercising that passion in incredible ways. That is fantastic and great lessons. Thank you for sharing those. Absolutely. Affinity Strategies is a full-service nonprofit healthcare associate management and stakeholder engagement firm. They use digital-first solutions to promote transparent, efficient business practices. They partner with each client organization to maximize both staff and client expertise, experience, and relationships to meet goals. To learn more about Affinity Strategies services, the team, and the mission-driven work they have done and continue to do, visit their website at www.affinity-strategies.com. Okay, Amy, we have our last substantive question for you today. And I know you are dying to talk with us about your passion on the things that can be done to improve the experience of caregivers of children with club foot. So would you mind sharing your thoughts? Sure. I think I'm going to start by sharing just one instance that really is burned in my brain. And really, unfortunately, like when I think about my pregnancy, the main thing that comes to mind. So I was at my 20 week ultrasound. I had a 3d ultrasound because I had a, I was not a high risk pregnancy, but because I had a birth defect was born with a birth defect there's a possibility that my son also had cleft palate, cleft lip or something related. And so we went to the ultrasound, you know, you, you know, when someone steps out of the room or when it becomes no longer joyful, that something's going on. And we were told that there was a likelihood that he either had club foot or it was something positional. Well, mm -hmm. I knew very little about club foot, but the term sounded archaic to me. Mm -hmm. And I was not with my normal OBGYN. I went to a different group for this 3D ultrasound. And what I was told is, oh, it's not that big a deal. Oh my gosh. You know, it, it's not too big of a deal. I mean, I said, well, how do I follow up on this? What do I do? Um, call your OBGYN, not even, we're going to share the information, call your OBGYN, you know, maybe try and find an orthopedist. We don't really know anything about this, but just trust us. It's not that big of a deal. And so immediately I thought, well, I'm emotional. I'm scared, but you're telling me it's not that big of a deal. So that's, I feel like invalidating my feelings sure. and what I'm thinking about the situation. And that just really had a strong impact on me and something I never want other parents to experience. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, there really does take a village to raise any child, but really a club foot kid. Like you need parents, you need grandparents, you need, I mean, my care team is everybody from my son's actual medical team. And we travel out of state to get that care to his you know, parents, including me, grandparents. I mean, we need people after I was on maternity leave, taking my son to appointments during the work day, training family up on how to follow the protocol. So if he's with somebody else overnight, everybody knows how to do that. Even having a local children's shoe store that can help me with his unique needs around being fitted for shoes. So that he sure. can wear, you know, just like every other kid, as Dr. Dobbs alluded to, you know, my son has some unique needs for being fitted with shoes. So you don't think about those sorts of things, but it is an entire village and it's a privilege to position to be able to have that village. Not everybody has mm. that. And so that's why I really admire the work Dr. Dobbs is doing to assist some of these parents who don't have the means, the resources, the privileges to be able to do those things. Well, I think from my perspective, I think about what could have helped me as a parent just really feel more comfortable. And I think those around mental health resources, really, I think there needs to be stronger mental health support for parents. You know, I had very little knowledge about clubfoot, as I said, but like, wasn't a big deal, not that bad. Well, every potential challenge is a big deal to a parent. Yeah. And then not having that additional support and putting that back on me to be able to find that support. And what I was really finding too was I blamed myself. I thought, you know, I had a lot of blame around if I couldn't protect my son in the womb, I must not be a fit mother. And so I was really, even before he was born, very much questioning my abilities as a mom. I felt like I had already failed. 
And it really did take a long time to work through and address those feelings. Some of those things I'm still feeling today. Yeah. And I really do thank my son because learning through his issues has taught me to go back and address some of those traumas from my own childhood and my own childhood health issues and go back and work through that. So I'm not bringing the preconceived notions of what I felt as a kid into his experience because while there's similarities, there are certainly differences too. But I think what I'm passionate about is just trying to be able to enable other parents to have resources mm -hmm. to follow the care. Because as Dr. Dobbs said, like when you follow the protocol, the results are very good. But when you don't follow the protocol, kids get in trouble. Mm -hmm. And then just parents. My son's orthopedist has said, this is going to be harder on you than it's going to be on him. He'll be done likely with the protocol by the time he hits kindergarten. He probably won't remember most of this, but I will. Mm -hmm. Our mm. family will. Mm -hmm. And so developing those resources, really understanding that this is, has a huge impact on parents, regardless of the condition, any birth defect, any medical condition. We all want our kids born into this world with less challenges and a better shot at life than we have. And so when they already start out of the gate with a challenge, it's hard for them, but it's also really hard for parents. Yeah, no kidding. You just shared a lot. And I'm so appreciative of you sharing that because like we say, you know, this makes a big difference to people who will listen to your story. And Amy, when you talk about the lack of resources to support the caregivers, how have you been able to grapple with, you know, all of the, whether it's impacting your mental health or impacting your child's mental health, if you don't have the resources to figure out what those coping mechanisms are going to be, have you been able to manage through it? It's been a lot of trial and error for the past mm. few years, finding out what works, finding out what doesn't, even with my son and not even just the emotional impact, trying out occupational therapists, trying out physical therapists, something I had no idea of was the correlation between your core strength and speech. So when wow. my son had a lot of speech issues and you think core strength, well, they're in a device most of the day that's mm -hmm. restricting their movement, restricting their abilities. My son didn't know how to crawl because he had not operated his knees independently. He's in a device where he's basically kind of like a mermaid. And, yeah. uh, and so there's some impact on that core strength too. these sorts of things that I was just discovering for the first time through trial and error. And I wish there was some guidance around here's what to expect beyond the protocol, which is wonderful, but here are some other things you might want to anticipate, might want to line up care and resources for. Wow. It's so interesting. And yet it's got to be so frustrating to have to learn on the fly. Yes. I feel like as all parents, we learn on the fly to a certain extent, like you never know. You can think you're prepared for parenthood. Absolutely nobody is prepared for parenthood, no matter how much babysitting you've done or how many nieces and nephews you have. Nobody's prepared, but this is just an additional layer of complexity on top of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Dobbs, I'm wondering if you might be able to weigh in on how you've seen maybe mental health aspects of Clubfoot bearing out on your child parent within your child patients. Yeah, it's incredible impact, as Amy alluded to. So, and some you know, people, as Amy said, have a bigger village you know, than others. And I think, you know, the bigger village helps with the mental health uh, issues uh, that go along with this, but they're not insignificant. And they're not something that probably the majority of orthopedic surgeons think about, you know, right. The, the, the mm. technical, you know, get done. The foot looks great. You should be fine. You know, what's the big deal? You know, mm -hmm. and it's, it, it's a huge impact. I mean, it's a really, really big impact. It's life impacting and changing for many years. And so, yeah, we don't mitigate it at all. And then we see some that really, really struggle with it. Hmm. And there's also, you know, and I treat kids from all over the world and there's many cultural differences, you know, that we don't necessarily are educated about, you know, having the appropriate sensitivity. So birth defects have a much different meaning in some countries than others. Hmm. And, you know, much of my time in Africa, the children there born with clubfoot are often put in the backs of villages they're not allowed to be educated. They're thought to be bewitched. You know, it's, mm. it's, a, it's a total lack of understanding of what this is and the etiology and the treatment. And so talk about emotional impact. It really varies, 
you know, and is different in every part of the world, but it's certainly not to be minimized. It is a, it is a real thing. Yeah, no kidding. Something I would add to is because there's a lack of awareness in the general public, I think about Clubfoot, like, so I'm feeling vulnerable as a new mom. I'm feeling especially vulnerable because I was putting on myself that I had failed my son. And then you go out in public with a child who is an infant who has a cast from the tip of his toe to his hip. And the looks you get in public are looks I never want to get again. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of, you must have failed your child. Your infant had an accident. He's not safe in your care. A lot of judgment. And then you switch from the casts to the boots and bar. Mm-hmm. And what I hated about that was the look switched from you must be a terrible mother to I have pity for your child. And I would much rather have them look at me like that than look at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this heavy stuff today, but we'll get to the lightning round soon. <laughs> yeah, we will. We will indeed. We will indeed. Just pivoting back to Dr. Dobbs for one last substantive question for you. You know, given the work that you've done around the world in all 50 states of our country as well, I'm just wondering if you might be able to share a story or two that particularly impacted you personally. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, there's one that sticks in my mind quite a bit yeah, <laughs> that I would share. And this is a, it's an international story. And this dates back, I guess, to the early part of my practice. So this is about 18 years ago or so. And I used to go... As I mentioned a little bit earlier, to sort of these medical outreach and do some treatments internationally. And this is a trip I had to South America and kids were brought in. You could evaluate and, you know, sort of triage and figure out what we could do to help them. And, and we had some limited resources that I worked with through a foundation I had started. We could identify some kids and actually bring them back for treatment if you couldn't, you know, do treatment there. And so I had an older child. He's not a child. He's an adult. He's 21. But he mm-hmm. came in with clubfoot. And he was working as a farmhand. This is in South America and really smart guy. And bring up this kind of the African similarity here that I told you about. He was never allowed to be educated. This was his life's work was to be a farmhand. That was his fate in life. And I kind of went over, you know, he's 21 and he wanted his foot treated. It hurt at this stage. He's walking on the top of his foot and his unilateral is a one-sided club foot. And kind of went over things. I said, well, we have this Ponsetti method, but this was developed for infants. You know, you, you, you're older, you're an adult, you have a rigid foot, you know, you have surgical options that we can look at now, but you know, that's your options if you wanted to treat. And he's like, well, you know, he wanted to see about the less invasive method. Can you do it on me? And so I, I said, well, well, we can try. And so we flew him back. We got him a host family, you know, to stay mm-hmm. with. He spent five months in this country. And I started the Ponsetti method on it at 21. It hadn't been done. And I did the first few casts and gotten nowhere. And I was very discouraged. I said, I don't think this is going to work. I said, I'm not making progress here. And he said, keep going. <laughs> and so we, we, we kept going and we gave in a little bit and we started to make more rapid progress. It took longer than it does in an infant, but we got there and I was able to, you know, correct his foot. I did a you know, tendon procedure on him the tendon lengthened in the back of the heel, but that was the only surgery I did. And he had a foot that was plantigrade. Now the question becomes, you know, well, well, did it stay? You know, what was the effect on that? And he has sent me now, and I've seen him too, but he sent me pictures, you know, 15 years later, plus now he's got a fully corrected foot. He ambulates without a brace. And the best part about this story, and this is why it sticks in my memory, is that he went back. Once the stigma was gone, he was able to then climb the ladder. And so he went from being a farmhand at 21 to a college graduate in Mexico City, and he's a successful businessman in Mexico. And this is all because of removing a stigma. So it's really silly. I said, you know, his foot may feel like crap now. You know, I don't know. But the stigma has (laughs) gone. And the other gift that he got before him that allowed him also the education, five months that he spent in the States, he learned English. Oh my gosh. And, you know, this was another gift he took back home and allowed him to advance as well. But and all joking aside, his foot does function well. He does well, <laughs> but, but, I mean, but the gift for him was 
being able to, you know, advance in life. And we see this sort of problem in many of the countries that I go to try to implement change. You know, if you want to look at the global impact of Clubfoot, you have to think way beyond just the deformity. And Amy alluded to some of these things. I mean, this can be even more life changing and affecting in, in many places in the world. It's very sad to see that, but it's also heartwarming to see some of the stories that can come you know, from, yeah. from treatment. So yeah, it's pretty neat. But that one, that one sticks in my mind the most, I think. That is a fantastic story. And Amy, your story and your son's story is equally incredible. And you've just given me so much more to think about. And I just thank you both for sharing all of that great insight and experience. So are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Ready as I'm going to be. Yeah. <laughs> I should look at them. <laughs> I was just trying to pull up my email. <laughs> the surprise element could make this much more fun. <laughs> okay. First one goes to Amy. Describe yourself in three words. I would say royal, creative, and driven. Wonderful. Dr. Dobbs, this one's for you. Favorite day of the week? Hump day. Why? (laughs) (laughs) It's just the middle ground. It's like, you know, you've got part of your work week done. You've got more to come. It's, you know, you're right in the heat of things. It's good. (laughs) All right. That isn't a great explanation. Okay. Amy, last song you downloaded. I actually had to look this up. I did have to prepare for this one. So I am a big fan of indie, alternative, and hip hop. So he said, she said by Churches is one song I've been listening to lately. Love Churches. Girl after my own heart. (laughs) All right, Dr. Dobbs, this is a very serious question. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals. I'd rather be able to speak every language in the world because I already speak to animals. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not in the right way, you know. <laughs> certainly, certainly. You know, yeah, languages, I would put that up there. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Amy, favorite junk food? Um, everyone in my life would corroborate this, chocolate. You know, there's like the alert, terror alerts. Like my, my red level is there is no chocolate in the house. Ooh. Oh, well, I like, that. I like it too. And I can relate. Dr. Dobbs, ask permission or seek forgiveness? Seek forgiveness. Why? Because <laughs> sometimes you just have to act. <laughs> You know, if you do too much yeah. thinking, then it's uh, it's a problem. That's right. You can't innovate very well, right? That's right. That's, That's right. right. Okay, Amy, this may be one of my most favorite questions. What's the most boring thing ever? Televised golf tournament. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it. Dr. Jobs. How many times did you sneeze in the last seven days? I'd have to say none. I don't sneeze much that I moved to Florida. The allergens ah, are gone. Very good. Well, good for you. Good for you. One of the many benefits I'm guessing of living in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few. <sighs> Amy, what is the fastest you've ever driven a car? So I actually, when I worked in manufacturing and distribution, one of the companies I worked for had a race car. I did not get to ride in it. So my answer would have been a lot more exciting if I had, but my multiple speeding tickets say too fast. (laughs) Good. When was the most recent one? No comment. Okay. Very well. (laughs) We'll move on then. Dr. Dobbs, what's for dinner tonight? Uh, Probably salmon. A lot of fish eating down here now. So yeah, Uh, salmon's on the menu tonight. Wonderful. (laughs) Nothing like fresh caught Atlantic salmon, right? (laughs) right. Amy, dawn or dusk? Dusk. I feel like when the world is quieter, everyone's paused. That's when I get my creative ideas. I'm definitely a night owl. Lovely. Dr. Dobbs, 
Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? Absolutely. Hypocritical. <laughs> I was really hoping you weren't going to laugh after you said that, because that would have been perfect. Oh, deadpan. Okay. oh, Amy, who do you admire? Uh, I think this goes back to just telling the story about the village of caretakers. So definitely my parents, they're amazing people who've been incredibly supportive to me and my biggest cheerleaders. That's wonderful. Dr. Dobbs, what are you currently reading? Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. Mm. It's uh, interesting, I guess, <laughs> from my days in China, but this is an interesting book about an individual in China who's an actor and sort of trapped in his fate of being an actor in China and dreamed of sort of stardom beyond mm. uh, so his struggles with that. It's, mm. uh, it's an interesting read. Yeah. That sounds interesting. Last question goes to Amy. What is your dream job? Of course, other than the one you currently have. I would love to be a career coach. So coaching and mentoring other women and, and helping them develop their careers. I see you have a bright future in that for well, sure, you. for sure. So listen, you two, this has been an incredibly inspiring and motivating and fascinating conversation. I want to thank you both for spending time with us today. Before we let you go, would love to give you both an opportunity just to give us some final thoughts or words of advice that come to mind. You want to go first, Amy? Sure. So I would just say if any other Clubfoot parents are listening to this, we'll have contact information made available, I'm sure. And I would love to talk to you about your personal experiences. I can only speak based on my experience, but I remember sitting in the waiting room during my son's Achilles tomotomy and other Clubfoot parents were lined up there and wondering, should I introduce myself? Should we talk? I would love to meet these people. I would love to just not even talk about that, but just to be parents together. So if anyone's in that position, please feel free to reach out. I'd love to talk to you. Oh, what a generous offer. And thank you for being so bold to step out there and encourage a community of parents. That's fabulous. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. Absolutely. Amy, how about you, Dr. Dobbs? Yeah, well, this has been an absolutely wonderful forum, and I hope that listeners will enjoy. I also am very open to any sort of feedback or communications. Many people reach me through Facebook, <laughs> um, but I'm certainly available and willing to chat about anything. And I guess the message I always leave everyone with this sort of venue is think outside the box, you know, be willing to take risk and don't get sort of, you know, stuck in, the, in a current mold. I think that it serves us all well to sort of think in those mindset. Ah, oh, that's fabulous. Thank you for those kind words. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. And best wishes to both of you in doing all of the fabulous things you're doing for your own communities, as well as the greater good of our world. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Yeah. Great to see everyone. Nice to see you too, Amy. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Take care. The magic of storytelling was alive and well during the episode with Amy and Dr. Dobbs. They artfully wove together their personal experiences with clubfoot and other birth defects in a very impactful manner. Dr. Dobbs shared the incredible work he has done and continues to do with respect to the non-invasive correction method he advocates for when correcting clubfoot for children. The perspective he has as a healthcare provider and being a partner to the child and their family through the correction process is fascinating. We talked about the stigma associated with lower limb deformities and how complicated it can be from one culture to another. Dr. Dobbs literally impacts hundreds of thousands of clubfoot kids through his international train the trainers program, which has been life-changing for the kids, their families, and I would imagine the healthcare providers too. Amy eloquently shared so many insights regarding her own childhood experiences living with a birth defect and how that informed her role as a parent of a clubfoot kid. She was so vulnerable in sharing her personal stories in the hopes of providing ideas and support to other parents of clubfoot children. Her passion was palpable, not only as she spoke about the dealing with forfeiting bodily autonomy as a child, 
but also the mental health aspect of birth defects on the child themselves as well as their family. I know that her vulnerability during today's episode will have a positive impact on others who are also living through difficult medical complexities. Today's episode was written, researched, and hosted by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by DJ Stanyars and music from Caleb Justinger. You can find House Call on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. Share it with your friends, and if you enjoy what you are hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call and Affinity Strategies Podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thank you for listening. I'm Claire Vincent. Claire Vincent.